All the world's bishops were on their way to Rome for the council. The council, the Ultramontanes hoped, would be the council to end all councils. For once the Pope was infallible, any subsequent councils would be superfluous. There were two distinct adversarial groups among the bishops, the Gallicans and the Ultramontanes. Between them were bishops with varying alliances and prejudices, adding an element of unpredictable fluidity between the two camps. Within each camp, there was significant division. For those who wanted a definition of infallibility, there was no consensus to the scope. Nor was there agreement about who exactly was infallible, the office or the man. What were its limits? Did it even have limits? Many thought not. And what about the bishops? If the Pope makes unilateral judgments on faith and morals, what remaining role do the bishops play in the church? Among the Gallicans, they had a liberal faction that leaned toward the Enlightenment values of self-governance. Increasingly centralized authority in the church was something that they were naturally opposed to. But for the purest Gallicans, opposing infallibility was a matter of principle, a matter of custom. They were trying to preserve the traditional understanding of the relationship between the Bishop of Rome and the rest, and more importantly, the relationship between the bishops and their flocks. St. John Henry Newman, famed Oxford Movement convert, declined the invitation to the council, but nonetheless questioned the wisdom of calling this council. Quote, When has a definition of doctrine of faith been a luxury of devotion and not a stern, painful necessity? End quote. Modern liturgical scholar Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, an author of several books and published lectures on this subject, tells us that Newman was hesitant about a definition of infallibility not because, quote, he did not accept the Pope as God-given pastor of Christians and the final court of appeal, but because he knew that a party of ultramontanes was busy pushing a theologically unsound, philosophically unreasonable, historically untenable, and ecclesiastically damaging version of papal inerrancy that threatened to confuse the Pope's office with divine revelation itself, rather than seeing him more modestly as the guardian of tradition and the arbiter of controversy." End quote. Many bishops were just simply skeptical of anything Pius IX was up to. From Bishop Freppel of Angers, France, quote, The council is being held either too soon or too late. Too late because we are at the end of a pontificate of a tired and discouraged old man who views everything through the misfortunes he has suffered. For him, everything that takes place in the modern world is, and must by necessity be, an abomination. It is too soon because it is clear that the situation in Europe is not yet settled. End quote. The American bishops, for their part, were largely left out of all the commotion of the pious pontificate. During the Risorgimento and the Italian Wars for Independence, they were preoccupied with the American Civil War. They further, being good old-fashioned Americans, were largely unimpressed by the Pope's syllabus of errors, which fell on nearly unanimous deaf ears across the Atlantic. After arriving in Europe, Bishop McQuaid of Rochester, New York, wrote back home, quote, Since coming to Europe, I have heard much of the question of infallibility of the Pope which with us in America was scarcely talked of. The feeling is very strong, pro and con. It seems that the Jesuits have been at the bottom of it and have been preparing the public mind for it for the past two years. They have not made friends for themselves by the course they have followed. And if in any way the harmony of the council is disturbed, it will be by the introduction of this most unnecessary question. There is no telling what the Jesuits will do, and from the manner in which they are sounding out the bishops, I am inclined to think that they will succeed in having the question forced upon us. In my humble opinion, and almost every American bishop whose opinion I have heard agrees with me, it will be a great calamity for the church. End quote. The Bishop of Pittsburgh, hearing that infallibility was the reason he'd been dragged to Europe, said, It will kill us. 
We shall have to swallow what we have vomited up. With the bishops arriving in Rome, Dolinger used his pen to go on a final offensive against the Ultramontanes, accusing them of attempting a papal seizure of power. According to Dolinger, the bishop's authority would be undermined, replaced by a papal dictatorship, calling the thousand-year effort of the popes to centralize power, quote, a tumor that is disfiguring the church and causing it to suffocate. Bishop Doppenlu agreed, and he published a pamphlet that was handed out before the opening ceremonies. In the middle of November 1869, because of new industrial transportation, bishops from far corners of the world could now attend and were attending this first ecumenical council in over 300 years. Some 700 bishops of the thousand or so around the world had come. Such an attendance would not last for long, though, as we'll see. Nonetheless, even with the bishops of the world in Rome, Europe was wildly overrepresented, making up two-thirds of the prelates. Britain had 34 bishops, 20 of which were from Ireland. German lands had 18 of its 20 present. 49 represented the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Both France and Spain sent over 80 apiece. Italy was way overrepresented with 117 prelates and about half of them coming from the Roman Curia. America had its first opportunity to participate in the council and sent nearly 50 prelates from the United States along with 18 from Canada and 50 from Latin America. 61 bishops represented the Eastern Rite churches from the Ottoman Empire along with 41 coming from China and India. One came from the Philippines, one from Australia, and eight came from all of Africa. The first thing all these old men had to do when arriving in Rome was to secure lodging. Many of the European bishops had plenty of money and were thus able to lock down comfortable apartments and private carriages to cart them around. Those coming from outside Europe were more cash-strapped and had to find lodging in seminaries or religious houses, often in unheated and unwindowed quarters. Unable to afford carriages, they had to make their daily trips on foot. In the 19th century, before microphones, audio equipment, and TED Talks, acoustics for large gatherings was a critical concern. The council was originally supposed to take place in the Church of St. Apollinaire because it was good for acoustics. Pio Nono overruled that decision and demanded it occur in St. Peter's Basilica. The acoustic problem was hoisted upon a Roman architect to figure out a solution for. His solution was to build an enormous wooden box or shell and paint it to look like marble, blocking out the echoes from the cavernous basilica. For a bunch of grumpy old men, hard of hearing anyway, this really didn't help any. At 9 a.m. on December 8th, church bells throughout Rome began ringing to call the bishops to the council. As a procession of the gilded clergy began making their way to the basilica, the skies opened up into a torrential rainfall. Getting soaked to their bones were 49 cardinals, 11 patriarchs, 6 prince bishops, 680 archbishops and bishops, 28 abbots, 29 superiors general, and over 250 resident Roman clergy. The Knights of Malta and the Swiss Guard awaited the procession at the basilica. Behind them was Pius IX being carried on a portable throne by his attendants. At the church entrance, he dismounted and he walked into the hall. With all members now present, the dean of the College of Cardinals presided at the solemn high mass, followed by a sermon. After mass, the entire congregation fell into line to pay homage to the Pope. The cardinals kissed his hand, the bishops his knee, and everyone else his foot. Pius then stood before his clerics, reminding them that they had important business before them, and not to fear that the church would triumph. He then quoted scripture, exclaiming, quote, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. End quote. Golikans bristled, believing it to be a nod to the Ultramontanes. When the Pope was done speaking, the MC asked the congregation, quote, Most reverend fathers, does it please you, for the praise and glory of the holy and undivided Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the increase and exaltation of the Catholic faith and religion, for the uprooting of current errors, for the reform of the clergy and Christian people, for the common peace and concord of all, that the sacred ecumenical Vatican Council begin and be declared already to have begun. End quote. The response was a resounding agreement. And with that, the First Vatican Council commenced and was entered into the pages of history. Rome's naturally superstitious populace marveled at the unrelenting reign, fearing it was a bad omen for things to come. It was, at least, an omen of how uncomfortable the council would be. The first day of the council was taken up with administrative affairs. The clerics immediately began complaining of the lack of heat in their sleeping quarters, the horrible weather, the inability to hear any of the speakers, and boredom. Making it through some of the meetings, when Cardinal Manning was asked what they had been discussing, he responded, quotes, Well, we meet, and we look at one another, and then we talk a little, but when we want to know what we have been doing, we read the times. End quote. Many of the bishops were infirm, and after the initial opening of each session, they were carried off back to their quarters for comfort. The clerics from non-European countries had another problem. Even if they could hear what was being discussed, all the speeches were in Latin, which they hardly spoke. One of the first suggestions made by the clerics was to move the location of the council so they could hear whatever it is they were supposed to be voting on. The request went nowhere. Instead, to ease their discomfort in an adjoining chapel to the basilica, a lounge was set up, carpeted and fitted with cozy chairs and a bar that served wine. This helped to ease the daily torture somewhat. Patience and manners of all the bishops began wearing down quickly, and they soon found themselves faced with a terrifying thought. No end date for the interminable council was given. They began to wonder how long they were expected to stay. Many began making arrangements to leave in their own time. Bishop McQuaid wrote home, quote, Unless an escape is found from the present way of getting on, the council will not be over for years. I would not like to say how many. End quote. Many of these bishops had pressing matters in their own diocese that needed attending to. The European bishops were particularly anxious as war between France and Prussia seemed imminent, and Rome, they guessed, would be caught up in the middle of it. Many prayed that something would make them adjourn before they were forced to vote on infallibility. Despite the marketing material, they knew that's why they were there, and they knew their clerical careers hung on how they voted. Outside the council, the streets of Rome were swollen with journalists and the generally curious. Despite the rules on secrecy, the Roman streets were abuzz with rumor mills of infallibility. This thing, that was too delicate to mention at the council, was the most talked about issue in the cafes. German historian Ferdinand Gregorovius, doing research for a multi-volume history of Rome, wrote of the convening bishops, quote, Rome presents the spectacle of deification, amounting to insanity, of despotism. If the movement is really carried, if the bishops in fear and fanaticism yield submission to the will of the Pope, it is to be hoped that the unity of Germany will quickly bring to pass a second reformation. End quote. Croatian bishop Josip Strassmeyer arrived as one of the doctrine's loudest opponents. Strassmeyer's see was within the Ottoman Empire at the time, and his life's work had been the reconciliation of the Slavic Orthodox communities to communion with Rome. He warned papal infallibility would undo everything he had labored for. Pius IX, 
would come to despise Strassmeyer, for he was regarded as warm-hearted and affectionate by all. He was also eloquent and effective in his opposition to the Pope. Out of the 700 or so clerics who attended the council, it's estimated that about 150 were publicly against defining the doctrine. Knowing infallibility would be forced into the schedule at some point, they knew they would need to form a voting block of coherence, which they did quite well. But the true strength of the minority was that they hailed from the most influential and important sees in Europe. Paris, Mainz, Munich, Vienna, Prague, Turin, Milan. These were not novice clerics. They also loved their flocks, loved the church, and loved the papacy, despite the toxicity of the current pope. They were not revolutionaries, but counter-revolutionaries, attempting to hang on to the reins of episcopal authority that was all but gone. You could say, these 150 bishops represented the last resistance against a continuous juridic and pastoral ossification of the papacy in the work since Gregory VII, 800 years ago. The simplest distillation of their argument was that defining a dogma of infallibility was now at best inopportune, and thus, this minority opposition came to be called the inopportunists. Pius IX did not view these clerics as his brothers, or even some sort of intellectual opponent. To him, they were debauched enemies of the faith. A note, handwritten by Pio Nono himself, was found in the Vatican archives that shed light on where his head was at at the commencement of the council. Quote, Some leaders among the opposition bishops are effeminate, and others are sophistical, or frivolous, or heretical. They are all ambitious, boastful, and obstinately attached to their own opinion. End quote. Among the majority, the Spanish-Americans, seeing the Spaniards favor a definition, joined in with them. The Italians were almost universally in favor of infallibility, save only the archbishops of Milan and Turin. The Irish were led by a very vocal pro-definition archbishop and therefore bent that way. The French episcopacy was shattered into several different groups, with a sizable middle group supporting some sort of limited definition. The English and Scots were split evenly, though tended to support the minority, largely because of Bishop Manning's aggressive ultramontanism that seemed to deify Pius IX. The Americans, thinking they were called across the pond for wildly different reasons, and having only recently become familiar with the debate, likewise didn't arrive with strong opinions. Yet as they sank their teeth into the debate, about half of them opposed the definition, arguing it would hamper conversions among the significant Protestant populations back home, and that it would complicate their relationship with constitutionally secular government, and worse, foment discord between the Pope and American Catholics who, as a rule, viewed centralized authority with little trust. It would be fair to say the Americans, despite technical divisions, didn't have their hearts in this debate. Only eight American bishops elected to even speak at the council. Infallibility for them was a minor issue. Instead, they put their efforts into convening with one another twice a week to discuss pastoral issues in the United States that they deemed way more pressing. We've already mentioned that council members were strictly forbidden from leaking anything to the press or discussing matters with the public. What happens at Vatican I stays at Vatican I, unless you know the Pope. Owner and editor of Le Universe, Louis Villot, had significant access to confidential information via regular meetings with Pius. Pius fed Villot propaganda that went straight to print, which was the major source of council news for the French laity. Other frequent guests of the Pope during the council were editors of the Civilta Catolica, that semi-official yet claimed to be independent Catholic journal whose final edit must be approved by the Secretary of State of Rome. Pius directly oversaw, edited, and approved the articles published by that paper, while all the while maintaining plausible deniability about how it sourced its confidential information on council proceedings. Yet propaganda flowed into the papal apartment too. 
the Ultramontane Radicals used their access to Pius's ear, especially via Cardinal Manning, to influence him, aligning him more into the limitless expectations of infallibility. The theological opposition outside the walls of the council was doing what it could. Joseph Dollinger took up an apartment in Rome and remained on the offensive in the published intellectual sphere. Lord Acton wrote to him daily on how the definition might be stalled. The papal police knew Dollinger was receiving aid from outside Rome and were on the hunt for correspondence that they could intercept. Acton, knowing Dollinger was being watched by Pius, sent his dispatches to Munich under the care of the Bavarian ambassador to Rome. Acton's brother-in-law worked at that embassy and facilitated the correspondence. Lord Acton was well-connected among the European aristocracy and had the full resources of the Bavarian embassy at his disposal. When European leaders wanted to get a message to the opposition within the council, they would contact Acton, who would then contact Dollinger, who would then meet with bishops Doppenloop or Strassmeyer. British diplomat to the Holy See, Odo Russell, reflects on how pivotal Acton was for the opposition. Quote, Both Doppenloop and Strassmeyer admit that the opposition could not have been organized without Lord Acton, whose marvelous knowledge, honesty of purpose, clearness of mind, and powers of organization had rendered possible what appeared at first impossible. The party he has so powerfully helped to create is filled with respect and admiration for him. End quote. European governments had existential reasons for influencing the council. They were loath to see the syllabus of errors codified. The upshot of the Enlightenment bloodbath was that European princes had found relative middle ground for freedom of press and religion. They feared a declaration of the Pope's temporal authority, knowing that they would then be forced to choose sides in a debate none of them wanted to have. The Pope fought a war for land and lost. This was how the game was played. Welcome to Europe. Many still had existing concordats with the Holy See. A declaration of papal infallibility would constitute a fundamental change in the kind of authority with which they were negotiating, rendering them all null. Despite Pius's insistence on not inviting the princes of Europe, their governments had full diplomatic, surveillance, and reconnaissance networks on the ground. With regards to information flowing in and out of the council, the apartments of Acton and Dollinger were just as active as Villot's and Pius's. For Napoleon III, he held no punches, and he spoke directly, warning Cardinal Antonelli that if papal infallibility succeeds, he will pull all French troops out of Rome, and they would be on their own. One of the early meetings of the council was set to determine how amendments to proposals would be processed and presented to the bishops for voting. The panels to process these amendments were called deputations. If Vatican I is a game of chess, this is where the minority bishops lose their queen. Cardinal Manning, along with another ultramontane, Cardinal Sinestri, realized that he who controls the amendments controls the outcome. They began compiling a list of bishops that would be voted upon to sit on these deputations. There were three criteria for making Manning's list. They must be, of course, pro-infallibility, they must come from a different variety of countries, and Cardinal Manning gets final approval. With his list complete, Cardinal Sinestri ordered it lithographed and distributed to trusted ultramontane members of the council. When Pius IX saw the list, he suggested to Manning that perhaps he should include at least one of the minority to show that there's some fairness, to which Manning replied, Heretics do not come to a council to help in formulating doctrine, but to be heard and condemned. The minority, not grasping the importance of these deputations and not comprehending the extent to which the majority stuffed the ballot, found out what happened way too late. When voting on the members of the deputations, most of the bishops simply cast votes reflecting Manning's lithographed list. 
Now, with absolute control of the deputations, no proposal by the majority could be amended by the minority. And no proposal by the minority stood a chance of making it into the final draft without the consent of the majority. The council had already been disparaged by some as being oriented towards a predetermined outcome. Those allegations were now codified. Common clerics on both sides were appalled at the deception. They found the whole process detestable. Taking what should have been an honest vote on procedural integrity, providing for the fairness of all voices, was instead reduced to a ballot-stuffing campaign. Colonel Schwarzenberg complained to one of the council presidents, We have been made a laughingstock to our people, and made out to be a disgrace in the church. Below, a voice for the Ultramontanes, was giddy, declaring the council already over. Some bishops regretted their involvement in the affair altogether, acknowledging that they helped rig a system. Everything was now tainted and bitter. Middle-of-the-road clerics who held both sides in charity now became hardened against the Ultramontanes. An English historian of the council, who took no position on infallibility, recounted, quote, After going through the proceedings of the entire council, I have to say that this appears to me as the most serious blot on its doings. End quote. It wasn't until December 28th that substantive theological discussions began taking place. The first was on a draft titled Dogmatic Constitution on the Catholic Faith Against the Manifold Errors of Rationalism. It had 18 enormous sections with tons of notes attached. The bishops who scheduled their time to speak on it complained that it was way too long, too wordy, too academic, and that none of the laity would read it, binding or not. Archbishop Halifax accused the council of departing from the precise language of previous councils, calling the document so bad that it defied revision and should be decently buried. Then came the criticisms of how the opening text of the document read, pious, bishop, servant of the servants of God, with the approval of the council, etc., etc. Bishop Strassmeyer strongly objected, and with much support to the opening text, arguing that dogmatic decrees should be promulgated in the name of the council, as was tradition, and not in the name of the pope. This affront to Pio Nono would not be tolerated. And so the council president interrupted Strassmeyer, admonishing him to stick only to the substance of the decree. To which Strassmeyer replied, I will say no more on a forbidden subject, but turn now to one that is allowed. Discussions continued for weeks and months, and on February 22nd, some of the proposals were sent to the deputations to process all the amendments and notes. The council then went into recess for a month to give the deputations time to sift through everything. One of the documents received by the deputations was called Supremi Pastoris, or of the Supreme Shepherd. When this document was previously submitted to the church fathers by the presidents, they were told that the document was not available for debate, but that they could only submit comments and that the deputations may revise it based on the comments received. It contained a preamble, 15 chapters, and 21 canons, which are sort of like new official rules associated with the document. One chapter dealt specifically with the infallibility of the church, but failed to explicitly mention papal infallibility. The minority was ecstatic, thinking that a doctrinal bullet had been dodged, and so they didn't object to a fabricated document being introduced. The recess was very much welcomed by all sides. Father O'Malley, in his History of the Council, described the feelings during the break, quote, Well before the recess, the bishops had grown increasingly frustrated at the slow pace, at the excruciating tedium of endless speeches and repeating points that had already been made countless times, and at the acoustics that distorted or muffled the words of speakers on those seemingly rare occasions when they made a new or particular important point. Ahead of them lay, they feared, perhaps three or four years of such torture, if they were to complete the program prepared for them and creep along at the same pace. End quote. In response to the bishop's frustration, Pope Pius released a new rule for the council. 
that the president, if the majority agreed, can now have the authority to cut short the list of speakers on the presented documents. While shortening the process, it manifested yet another regulation that favored the majority. And there was another new rule introduced under the guise of efficiency, where at previous councils, unanimity, consensus, or significant majorities were required to promulgate doctrine or dogma. Now, only a simple majority was needed. One bishop even noted this event as a great turning point in church history. When the deputations came back with revisions of the dogmatic constitution on the Catholic faith against the manifold errors of rationalism, it was hoped that their amendments were heard and that the document was made less academic. Instead, the document stood as is, being told that since academia was the principal source of rationalism, it would remain styled for an academic audience. It was also declared that the German academia was primarily to blame, and so the deputations handed the document to a team of bishops to rewrite it, leaving the academic tone but instead inserting Germans as the party to blame. These were revisions that no one asked for, and none of the German bishops were going to assist with a revision like that anyway. So to help with the revisions, they called up a German Jesuit, an ultramontane who was well-connected in Rome, Father Joseph Kluten. Kluten was henceforth established as a major academic in the council, serving at the request of these deputations and becoming an elected pass-through for drafting documents. Kluten, being given such a prominent role at the council, is a truly bizarre development. First, he was a revolutionary in his youth, circa 1830. Though many of the Ultramontanes were former revolutionaries, so that was far from a disqualifier. But second, despite being a priest, he was well known to be living in an apartment with a woman in the late 1840s in Rome, and publicly admitted to having a sexual relationship with her. In light of all this, he was still promoted to the substitute secretary of the Superior General of the Jesuits and a consultant to the Congregation of the Index. But here's where things with Father Cluton get really weird. In 1856, he was appointed confessor to the Franciscan convent of St. Ambrose in Rome. This little convent had really big problems. They defied the Holy Office of Rome by venerating their founding abbess as a saint. Father Cluton apparently encouraged them to do so. Two years later, a German princess, recently widowed, joined the convent to become a nun. The mistress of novices for the convent, Maria Luisa, this German princess discovered, claimed to be receiving messages from the Mother of God and was performing rituals reserved only for priests. To add another layer to this cake, she was also sleeping with several of the novices. Father Cluton, being confessor for the convent, knew all about this, and instead of reporting the convent to the powers that be, he began a sexual relationship with the mistress, Maria Luisa whom he defended as a saintly person receiving divine revelations. When the German princess got word out to the outside of what was going on in the convent, Cluton and Maria Luisa allegedly poisoned her. She survived the attempted murder, and her family came to her aid and removed her from the convent, and then reported the incident to the Holy See. The result for Father Cluton was his conviction as a heretic for promoting the cult of the founder of the convent. He was sentenced to three years of house arrest. Pope Pius IX, for reasons that defy all prudence, justice, and good governance, reduced his sentence by a year and allowed him to relocate to a shrine in Rome where the Jesuit could work on publishing his theological books. Seeing the council in need of a German authority, Pope Pius removed all ecclesiastical censures on Father Cluton and put him to work on the theology of infallibility. Now, 
Getting back to the council proceedings on the dogmatic constitution on the Catholic faith against the manifold errors of rationalism, Bishop Strassmeyer stood up with several challenges. He again disputed the opening lines that this document seemed to come from the mouth of the Pope and not the council. He stressed to the council that they remind themselves of the divine and inviolable rights of bishops. Second, he called the preamble foolish for ascribing all modern errors to Protestantism. He reminded the audience that Voltaire was a baptized Catholic. The president of the council once again interrupts Strassmeyer, asking him to refrain from words that scandalized those present. Some bishops began shouting at Strassmeyer to step down. Strassmeyer refused to yield the podium, violating the rules of the council by debating his critics point by point. The entire body of bishops, these grumpy, old, tired men who are now thoroughly sick and tired of being in Rome, devolved into an absolute shouting match. When things calmed down, Strassmeyer declared that he had another point to make. He challenged a new rule that a simple majority was all that was needed to ratify dogma, and he demanded to know why they had done away with the ancient rule of unanimity. But Strassmeyer was immediately interrupted again by the president, being told that is irrelevant to the subject under discussion. But Strassmeyer shouted over the president, demanding that the eternal and immutable rule of moral unanimity be put back in place. The Ultramontanes in the audience then began calling him names like Lucifer and Luther. The president clanged his bell and demanded order to the hall, but no one could hear him. And sick of the mayhem and hungry for dinner, one by one the bishops began leaving the basilica, bringing to an end Congregation Number 31 of the First Vatican Council. A majority of bishops were now offended by the behavior of the Ultramontanes and weren't afraid to leak their misgivings to the media that night over a bottle of wine. The international press went to print with the stories of Strassmeyer being shouted down, bullied, and unfairly vilified. The council was described as a narrow-minded circus, intolerant of freedom of thought and opinion that differ from the Pope King. Nonetheless, after the dogmatic constitution on the Catholic faith against the manifold errors of rationalism was sent to the deputations for final revisions and returned to the congregation, the body of the language was generally acceptable even to the opposition, except for the last paragraph, which contained a vague threat of heresy against those who oppose future legislation. Quote, but since it is not enough to avoid the contamination of heresy unless those are carefully shunned whose positions approach it in greater or lesser degree, we warn all of their duty to observe the constitutions and decrees in which such wrong opinions, though not expressly mentioned in this document, may have been banned and forbidden by this holy see. End quote. It was easy to read between the lines. Don't you dare oppose papal infallibility when it is at last presented to you. 44 bishops officially requested that the last paragraph be suppressed from the document. The deputations refused. The minority met and considered voting against the document entirely. But in the end, they decided that if the coming fight, the real fight that is, was to be about infallibility, then they would only hurt their standing in a vote against a document that they generally agreed with. Yet Strassmeyer still abstained from the votes. And without him, the dogmatic constitution on the Catholic faith against the manifold errors of rationalism which thankfully was shortened to De Filius, was passed unanimously. In the end, De Filius was an affirmation of church beliefs in the face of the Enlightenment and modernism. It affirmed that there is a God, and he can be known, that reason and divine revelation cannot be at odds. It fell short of what Pius wanted. He desired a codification of the syllabus of errors. But it also was something the world needed at a time when secular sciences and modern philosophers had significant influence vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic Church, which, under the pious pontificate, seemed hell-bent on medieval paradigms of the social order. From O'Malley, quote, 
Dephelius was a proclamation of the reality of the transcendent. It was an affirmation of a reality beyond the visible and the material, of a reality beyond the rationally demonstrable. As it did so, it taught that in the human person, the material and the transcendent met and interacted. There is one beyond the senses, who nonetheless can be known by beings of flesh and blood. Traditional though the statement was, it was not for that reason significant. The situation required that the church, if it were to remain true to itself, reaffirm such beliefs." End quote. Outside the walls of St. Peter's Basilica, no one cared about De Filius, this tragically forgotten document of Vatican I. The propaganda journals, for and against infallibility, ignored it, focused solely on the infallibility debate. The ultramontane bishops petitioned the Pope to at last introduce a document on papal infallibility to the council, thinking that they had the minority on their heels. Pius gave them what they wanted and produced a document, already prepared, presumably penned by Bishop Glasser under the theological advice of the previously mentioned Father Cluton. Since papal infallibility wasn't on the official schedule, the Ultramontanes attempted to declare that the Holy Spirit must have willed the discussion since its proposal came from the Pope. Some cardinals threatened to leave the council altogether considering the ridiculous facade. Strassmeyer compared the council to ancient Rome, calling it a servile senate to an emperor god. The original plan by the Ultramontanes for papal infallibility was to insert it into a much larger and vast document on church authority called Supremi Pastoris. Chapter 11 of Supremi Pastoris was to detail the Pope's primacy of jurisdiction. As a pre-approved and pre-designed addendum, papal infallibility was supposed to be inserted in chapter 11. Yet the minority bishops knew that they had time on their hands and at the speed that this council was moving, it would be many months or years before they got to chapter 11. But then everything changed. On April 29th, the presidents of the council announced that chapters 1 through 10 would be tabled, and that discussions would move immediately to chapter 11, papal primacy and infallibility. The minority was furious. Even the moderate bishops had problems with the theological implications of removing a discussion on papal primacy and infallibility outside of the larger context of church authority where it was intended to be enshrined. They denounced it as severing the head from the body. What we know now, what the bishops did not know then, was that the agenda was scrapped and infallibility rushed forward because the invasion of the city of Rome was a very real and imminent threat. Napoleon was not impressed by Pius's manipulation of the direction of the council, and the Italian king was running out of reasons not to conquer the Eternal City and establish it as his capital. Had the schedule remained the same, papal infallibility would have never happened. And now, what was rumored to be the real reason for the council had just been confirmed. The change of the schedule almost didn't happen at all. Three out of the five presidents refused to change the schedule, knowing the public scandal that they would be a part of, and they were right. But Pius IX, threatening the full punitive weight of his office, demanded that they change it, proving true Strassmeyer's admonition of a servile senate. The Pope, feeling the pressure of external forces bearing down on him and his own machinations facing imminent failure, had significantly hardened his heart against the bishops and the minority. Bishop Olathorne described the change in the outward attitude of the Bishop of Rome. Quote, the Pope takes every opportunity of expressing his views on the infallibility both in audiences and in letters, then at once to the papers. He has quite changed his old policy on our arrival when he professed neutrality before the council." End quote. What Bishop Olathorne did not know was that the neutrality Pope Pius demonstrated was a lie. Merely weeks after the council had first convened, Pius was presented with the disappointing news by his theologians 
that the history of the church did not really present a clear case for defining papal infallibility and thus would be a difficult thing to do. His response was, quotes, I am so determined to go forward with this matter that if I knew that the council was going to be silent on it, I would dissolve it and define it myself. End quote. Bishop Olathorne had drastically miscalculated his opponents. With the opposition hardening, Pius's famous flash attacks of uncontrollable anger became even more pronounced. His fuse had grown short. When diplomats or press asked about certain minority bishops, he lashed out, happy to see the names of the heretics smeared in the press and on the world stage. Bishop Moray, he dubbed a cold soul, a snake. Bishop Darboy, Archbishop of Paris, he said was wrong thinking and a bad bishop. Bishop Darboy, the very next year, would be murdered in the streets by revolutionaries. By April 19th, bishops from France, America, and even Italy, many of them ultramontanes, pleaded with the Pope to keep the original schedule, that the integrity of the council was at stake. Even as Secretary of State, Cardinal Antonelli warned Pio Nono that forcing infallibility this way would destroy its credibility as a free council in the court of public opinion and among the world governments. In response to the groups of bishops petitioning Pius to revert to the original schedule, Cardinal Manning quickly organized a group of bishops to plead with Pius to continue with the schedule change. Pius assured Manning that he would do the right thing. Then, Bishop Dapidlou of France wrote a letter to Pius, invoking a spirit of fraternal love with the Bishop of Rome. Quote, Most Holy Father, my name is not pleasing to you. I know it, and it is my sorrow. But for all that, I feel myself authorized and obliged, in the profound and inviolable devotion of which I have given so many proofs to your holiness, to open my heart to you at this moment. The report has confirmed that many are soliciting your holiness to suspend suddenly our important work and invert the order of the discussions. Allow me, most holy father, to say, your holiness, nothing could be more dangerous. End quote. The bishop's heartfelt letter was of no avail. Six days later, Pope Pius IX announced that papal infallibility would be the next item of business. The minority during these days, is described as despondent. The Bishop of Lucca wrote in his diary, quote, Will this be for the good? Will it not be bad to have moved this issue ahead? I feel a deep fear. The question of infallibility would have come before us in its own time, in a sober and dignified way. But now, it comes at us out of the blue and in an atmosphere of great agitation. End quote. On May 9th, the new document was distributed. It was called Pastor Eternus. It had a preamble, three chapters on papal primacy, and one on papal infallibility, with three canons at the end. The chapters on primacy can be seen as the full blooming flower of Gregorian reforms, giving the office of the papacy full jurisdictional authority, not just of faith and morals, but also of discipline and government, using the words, one flock, one shepherd, the minority went to work to make sure an amendment made it into the final copy, that this power, which was, in the document's own words, promulgated anew, included that this power of the Pope, quote, by no means detracts from the ordinary and immediate power of the Episcopal jurisdiction by which bishops tend and govern their flocks, in the place of the apostles by the appointment of the Holy Spirit, end quote. In the original draft of Pastor Eternus, it specifically labeled the Pope as a superior authority to a council and not answerable to it. History disagreed, 
Thus the minority succeeded again in softening the language to, quote, There is no appeal and no recourse to another authority, because no authority is higher. The fourth chapter on infallibility was attacked immediately because of its title, On the Infallibility of the Roman Pontiff. The minority again succeeded in having a change to a more limiting scope of the infallible teaching authority of the Roman Pontiff, implying that the Pope himself is not infallible, only certain teachings that come from his office. The text of the document would be debated for two whole months. All of the bishops agreed that the Church was infallible, but in the history of the Church, infallible teaching was the province of councils, not popes. The principal question was then, could the popes exercise supreme teaching authority apart from the church, i.e. without the consensus of the episcopate? For the minority, the answer was definitely no. The majority made no argument other than the necessity of efficiency. Councils took too long and were too cumbersome, which in their defense was on remarkable display in Rome in the spring of 1870. Another question debated was whether the pope himself was infallible or only his acts. And then, what would constitute an infallible act? How far did his infallibility extend? Are his statements absolutes? What if a council later disagrees with the whims of a pope? Using history as a judge, many popes have refused the idea that their acts are irreformable. One pope even signed a document with the Gallican saying as much. Almost no bishop at the council was prepared to defend an absolutist concept of infallibility. Most agreeing that he still needed to consult the church, yet this was not the weak sauce infallibility that the Ultramontanes envisioned. They argued way back to Pope Boniface VIII's bull Unum Sanctum in the 14th century, which tried to assert papal infallibility back then. The minority reminded the majority that Unum Sanctum was resoundingly rejected by the bishops, archbishops, medieval princes, and theologians. The minority then reminded the majority of the case of Pope Honorius, who was posthumously declared a heretic and anathemized by an ecumenical council for teaching heresy the 6th Ecumenical Council, and the 3rd Council of Constantinople to be specific. Yet, in the formal argument for infallibility submitted with the text, called the Relatio, it was declared that, quote, The infallibility of the Roman Pontiff is a truth divinely revealed. Therefore, it is impossible that it can ever be proved false by any historical facts. If, however, such facts are brought forward to oppose it, they must themselves be deemed false insofar as they seem opposed. Quote, History, being a human construct, was not an impediment. From O'Malley, quote, The most basic problem with Pastor Eternus was its historical naivete. It took the present situation as the norm for interpreting the past and projected present practice and understanding onto it. Since it ignored the differentiation between past and present, it lacked a sense of development from past to present, even though Newman's essay on the development of Christian doctrine was by then 25 years old. End quote. The minority was extremely sensitive to deviations from prior council rubrics. It also saw tradition and history as inseparable and intimately related. Tradition included more than just verses from scripture and pronouncements by councils and popes, which in any case had to be interpreted in context and according to how they were received and put into practice. Tradition included liturgical practices, the history of the reception of papal and conciliar decisions, and especially the customary ways the church had proceeded in the course of its history. Some argued that the laity would not take infallibility seriously and that it lacked context in their lives. Other bishops wondered why the Pope did not avail himself to the historical use of the councils for dogmatic authority. Why does the Pope require this doctrine? Why now? Bishop Hefele, a historian on the church council, reminded the majority that they were simply wrong by denouncing history as a man-made construct, that history was a theological source, that they were on shaky ground in insisting it wasn't. 
He went on to cite previous councils in history where the bishops operated as a safety check for pronouncements from the Pope that may have otherwise issued heresy. And as these arguments heated up, so did the weather. A heat wave soaring above 90 degrees struck Rome, making the council not just intellectually unbearable, but now physically exhausting. There was no air conditioning, and windows had to be kept shut to keep out mosquitoes. Some bishops proposed a recess until the fall, allowing nerves and thermometers to cool. The motion was, of course, denied. Further, news of movements outside Rome were making all of these foreign bishops nervous. They feared being caught in a revolution. Being forced back into the basilica, Bishop Darboy stood up and gave his objections. Infallibility had been thrust upon them when no one asked for it or saw its necessity. He called his proponents demagogues from outside the faith, looking to ruin it from within. He denounced how it had been ripped from the proper place in a larger contextual document of church authority and made a separate issue. He deemed the language vague and uncertain, and further saying that this decree would only make the problems of combating modernism worse. Bishop Kettler then stood up, quote, Everybody today deplores that all authority, both secular and spiritual, has collapsed, and all persons of goodwill want us to defend and give witness to authority as a necessity in society. Yet, at the same time, everybody today detests all forms of absolutism, from which so many evils have come upon the human race. Absolutism corrupts us and renders us vile. Proclaim, reverend fathers, proclaim to the whole world the church's authority, the mildest yet most basic, but also show forth that there is in the church no arbitrary, lawless, and absolute authority. Show that in her there is only one Lord, an absolute monarch, Jesus Christ. End quote. Kettler's speech was met with audible disapproval. The next day, after Bishop Kettler was shouted down for saying Christ is the absolute monarch of the church, seven bishops abandoned the council, citing matters that needed attending to at home. Bishop Vero of the United States then stood up and asked whether the Irish believed Pope Hadrian IV was infallible when he gave the English moral authority to invade and conquer Ireland, a shrewd zinger. He then ended his speech by declaring that a vote for infallibility was a vote for a sacrilege. The president of the council forced him to step down, which he did, no doubt, with some satisfaction. Finally, old Bishop Murray of France, who was mostly deaf, got up to speak. He told the majority that, while they saw the church as an absolute monarchy, he and his companions saw it as a limited monarchy. The council president interrupted Murray several times, attempting to prevent him from speaking, but being deaf, he passively ignored the council president. There were still 50 more bishops who had signed up to speak against defining infallibility. Yet, by a vote of a simple majority, the debate was brought to a close, leaving most of these voices unheard. Those remaining saw themselves and their rights as being violated by a gang, to which there was no appeal. The reality was that there was nothing they could do. There was no consensus on the historical merit of the document. There was no consensus on the theological merit of the document. And now, owing to the previous change of rules, a consensus wasn't even needed, and any proposed amendments were dead on arrival when submitted to the deputations hand-picked by Manning and Pius. Even among the Ultramontanes, there was no consensus on which questions were being answered by the document. Each bishop had his own interpretation of the text. A dogma is supposed to be divinely revealed truths of the faith. Those truths were never settled upon during the council. Since further discussion was forbidden and denied, the current and most common interpretation was that infallibility was personal to the Pope, absolute to his proclamations, and separate from the Church. This directly contradicted what the council president said the document would contain when it was first presented. And yet, here they were. 
On June 6, the council reconvened to debate the deputation's revisions of the text. Few points were scored by the minority, and almost no changes were made. Bishop Connolly implicitly accused the majority of heresy, subscribing to biblical fundamentalism. They weren't swayed. Days later, on June 17th, Pope Pius IX celebrated the 24th anniversary of his election. He used it as an opportunity to publicly malign the minority bishops, accusing them of laying aside their Episcopal garb in the evening, implying sinful lifestyles. He then dubbed the majority as the good sentinels who never leave their guard. The very next day, the most famous incident of the council occurred. Cardinal Filippo Guidi, being a Dominican, naturally sided with the majority, but was nonetheless uncomfortable by the comportment of the bishops on his side. Many of the minority bishops were his friends that he had known for years, and he knew them to be true pious men, and men who loved the papacy. He had thus far kept a low profile at the council, and hoped that a compromise between two sides could be found, for the good of the church. Guidi decided to take it upon himself to find that middle ground. He gave a speech asserting that it is the office of the Pope that is infallible, not the person. He used the metaphor of a person who once or twice had too much to drink, though he is not called a drunk. Divine assistance, he said, is promised to the act, not the person. He suggested that the title of the document be called The Infallibility of the Roman Pontiff in Defining Dogma. This would be a reflection of the acts of the Pope and not of the Pope himself. Guidi then agreed partly with the minority that it is reasonable, based on history, that the bishops must be consulted before the Pope may make an infallible statement, yet agreed with the majority that when the Pope makes such a statement, it is then beyond the council's authority to reform it. The Ultramontanes were unsatisfied by the compromise and booed Guidi off the stage. Bishop Manning denounced Guidi as confused. Bishop Strassmeyer kissed his hand and thanked him. Moderates on both sides seemed to be appeased, praising Guidi for his bridge to unity. Bishop Darboy cautioned that while reaching a consensus was vitally important and praised Guidi's attempt, the actual text of the decree still needed to be changed, not just its interpretation. To the horror of the hardcore Ultramontanes, a coalition of moderates was achieved by Guidi. Pio Nona was furious. There was to be no moderate coalition. Later that day, he summoned Guidi to his papal apartment and he shouted at the cardinal, accusing him of befriending the heretics and enemies of the church. He accused him of trying to ingratiate himself with the Italian government to gain their favor when they conquered Rome. He reminded Guidi that it was he, Pope Pius IX, who had appointed him to be cardinal, and that the cardinal was his creature, that he owed his career to the pope only. How dare he act in such an unfriendly way towards his benefactor? Guidi, a bit overwhelmed by the admonitions of the Vicar of Christ, attempted to calmly ask His Holiness to investigate history before making a declaration on infallibility urging the pontiff to consult the traditions of the faith, and that he was prepared to defend what he said, because it was in conformity with the doctors of the church, such as St. Thomas. The Pope responded with wrath, quote, I, I am tradition. I, I am the church. End quote. Pope Pius IX dismissed the cardinal and then ordered his doctor to bring him a laxative to calm his blood. That evening, minority and majority bishops sought out Cardinal Guidi to thank him for his bridge to moderation, totally unaware of what had just happened. And when he told them of the rebuke, they were speechless. It was unvarnished megalomania on display. Some bishops opted to leave Rome in despondency. 
Dominican historian and senior professor at the University of Munich, Ulrich Horst, wrote a book on medieval papal teaching authority published by Notre Dame University, put this Guidi affair as a thousand-year watershed moment. Quote, The intervention of the Dominican Cardinal Felipe Maria Guidi, who criticized papal infallibility without certain conditions, was the last attempt to orient the discussion to the late medieval and early modern theologians of the Cardinal's order. The rejection of his proposal by the majority of the fathers and by Pope Pius IX showed that a long and complex history of papal teaching authority had definitively come to an end. End quote. There was to be no more debate. There was never supposed to be a debate. Papal infallibility meant whatever Pius IX said it did. The next day, the majority went on a counteroffensive. Cardinal Diavanzo who also was one of the deputations, gave a speech proclaiming that when the Pope speaks on an article of faith, he is at that point, quote, an incarnation of the supernatural order of Christ within it, who, therefore, in all things and for all things, is in the Pope, with the Pope, and speaks through the Pope. End quote. The minority bishops were already so disheartened by this point that borderline sacrilegious statements like these failed to excite them anymore. They submitted their petitions for amendments to the deputations, knowing full well that they wouldn't even be read. But what else could they do? Before there was any confirmation that an agreement on the text had been reached, Pope Pius set the date for the public promulgation of the text for July 18th, two weeks away. The deputations had their work cut out for them. And in their haste, they left more than half of the document unamended. Cardinal Spaulding who, though a supporter of the document, was also a moderate, and he succeeded in convincing the deputation to partially reassert the authority of the bishops in the final text. A welcome change for the minority. But Pius was still not satisfied with the text. It was the deputation's job to process amendments raised by church fathers, not invent new ones. The Pope ordered them to do just that in the final version. They were ordered to add a canon to the document aimed specifically against Bishop Murray's thesis of papal infallibility. For months, he had argued that the history and tradition showed that the papacy occupied only the principal part and not the full part of church authority. The Pope wanted the exact opposite in writing in the final document. Some members of the deputation felt reluctant to draft language that so specifically targeted a member of the council, i.e. Bishop Murray. They were perhaps even more uncomfortable in taking it upon themselves authority which the council did not grant them. To add language to a document not introduced or presented by the Church Fathers would be an egregious and illegal violation of not only what credibility was left in the execution of their office, but also a direct subversive act against what is supposed to be a holy ecumenical council. And yet, the Pope, who was about to be declared infallible in a matter of days, demanded that they do just that. And so they did. A great many of the minority bishops had already packed up and left Rome by this point, and Pius and Manny knew there really wasn't anyone left to constitute a significant opposition. That opposition had gone home humiliated and dejected. On July 9th, five days before its promulgation, the council received back the revisions on Pastor Eternus. Neither side was fully happy with the text. Chapter 4 was changed to the title that appeased the minority and suggested by Cardinal Guidi, on the infallible teaching of the Roman Pontiff. Cardinal Manning was disappointed that they did not have an unequivocal document on limitless papal authority. The minority had successfully worked in a very limiting phrase, ex cathedra, meaning that the Pope was only infallible when speaking from the chair of Peter, rendering most of what the Pope says as fallible. Yet, discovering the fabricated canon aimed at Murray, the Gallicans were incensed. 
How could the deputations introduce a text into the document that the council never saw, never considered, never proposed, never voted on, and never asked for? The Ultramontanes were frustrated, too, by the weakness of the document, but Manning nonetheless urged his underlings to vote placid, meaning affirmative, not because he was happy with the text, but because he feared the political situation in Europe was explosive. The Italians may invade in a matter of days. On July 13th, the revisions were put to a vote. When Pope Pius was asked how many votes against the document he would receive, he estimated less than 10. The tally was 451 for, 62 for but with revisions, and 88 against. The strong showing of disapproval inspired the minority to conclude that with so many church fathers against the vote, the majority would have to listen to them now. And they again underestimated Pio Nono. Villo went on the attack, quote, Now we see how stubborn they are in their heresy, and how useless is any concession to them. End quote. Pius wasn't done inserting his own words into the text independent of the council either. He loathed any notion of accountability to the church fathers, and thus ordered the deputations to insert the following words at the end of the decree, quote, Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves, and not by the consent of the church, immune from reform, end quote. The minority bishops still left in Rome were just beginning to realize they were dealing with a tyrant with zero respect for ecumenical proceedings. The Pope was going to proclaim himself infallible, with or without them, so instead of continuing to block Pastor Eternus, they hoped that, in exchange for voting in favor of it, they could force some amendments. They secured an audience with Pio Nono. A five-man delegation of the minority was sent, and presented the Pope with an offer. If he removed the language aimed at the Gallicans in Chapter 3 and in Chapter 4, inserted language that the Pope's decisions must be supported by the Church Fathers, they could guarantee a hundred more votes in favor. The Pope brushed them off telling them that he did not interfere in the workings of the council. A brazen lie, since that's exactly what he had been busily doing since not only the previous day, but every day since the idea for the council first entered his consciousness. He demanded that they put their request in an official memo, and he would consider it. The minority delegates left, thinking that they had made some headway. Yet the very next day, on July 16th, the deputations announced the final version of the decree had been completed. None of the minority bishops' changes were made. Cardinal Glasser, one of the presidents of the council and likely the principal author of Pastor Eternus, gave a speech reminding the minority bishops of their responsibility to the world. Quote, it is clear that human society has arrived at a point where its very foundations have been shaken. The church was the only means to remedy the situation, because in it alone was an infallible authority against which the gates of hell would not prevail. For that reason, God had willed that the doctrine come before the council. End quote. This was all the final insult to the minority, and even moderate-minded bishops. They never approved this final version, and never knew the Pope had made changes to it in the first place. The presidents had lost control of the assembly, shouts rang out from the bishops, condemning the council as rigged, accusing the Pope and its leaders of a coup in the church. The Ultramontanes shouted back, praising the coup for what it was. Then, in a truly tone-deaf move, the council presidents presented the bishops with a list of books critical of the council that had been published since it began. The bishops were then asked to sign their names to a document condemning these books, thereby having those opinions and authors officially condemned by the council. The bishops again shouted in protest that they were being asked to sign against things that they had never read. And with that, most of the congregation turned and headed for the door. Many were done with what they saw as a sham. The next day, July 17th, a significant bulk of the minority bishops 
decided that they had had enough, and they boarded a train out of Rome to begin their journey home. Another group of minority bishops, about 60 of them, met in an apartment to decide if they should stay and vote or abstain and protest and leave. They decided that they would act as a body and take a vote to decide. The majority came back in favor of abstaining and going home. They wrote a short letter to the Pope, giving him their reasons and fears, and then left Rome. They also expressed fear of the political situation that Rome faced, for just days before, war was declared between France and Prussia. On July 18, 1870, the day of the promulgation had at last arrived. It was a day that felt ominous. Even Velot admitted that everyone feared a schism that might be caused by infallibility and the coming war. Only 535 prelates were present at St. Peter's Basilica, a reduction of 25% from when the council started. No one was surprised by the absence of the minority, but what struck those who remained was the absence of the diplomatic corps to the papacy, manifesting the prediction of the Secretary of State, Cardinal Antonelli, about the decree that it would delegitimize the papacy in the eyes of the world governments. These Catholic nations, France, Austria, Spain, and Portugal, wanted nothing to do with infallibility. Bishop Passavalli, who gave the opening sermon of the council back in December, had himself opted not to be present, along with other members of the Roman Curia. And then, as one author puts it, these clouds over the council were not only metaphorical, the heavens again opened up in drenching rain, along with alarming displays of lightning and thunder, eerily similar to the weather of the opening day of the council. The local, historically suspicious Roman population again took note. The Pope had ordered his subjects to light up their homes in celebration of the event. No one dared and left their houses dark. Even the Pope's own entourage was nervous, and with good reason. A quarter of the Church Fathers left Rome in disgust. The Catholic allies of Europe have abandoned them. The people of Rome shut themselves up in their homes. And even God himself saw it fit to bless the day with terrifying lightning. Pius reminded them, Did God not choose to give Moses the tablets on Mount Sinai amid just such a celestial fireworks show? With the ratification of Pastor Eternus, codifying the infallible papacy, and attaining the long climb of Gregory VII's vision for his office, cries amid the bishops rang out, Long live the infallible Pope. Pius gave a short address in response, praying that the Lord enlighten the hearts of those who do not accept the doctrine. Hello, wrote on the universe, reiterating Pius's reference to himself as a new Moses, quote, We have been led out of Egypt, and Pharaoh has been driven from the land. We have a Moses, indeed, a greater than Moses. End quote. This new Moses, amid the fireworks of heaven, presented his decree to the world. Quote, we teach and define that it is a divinely revealed dogma that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in discharging the office of pastor and of teacher of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church, by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter. It is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine redeemer willed that his church should be endowed for defining doctrine regarding faith or morals, and that therefore such definitions of the Roman pontiff are irreformable of themselves and not from the consent of the church. But if anyone, God forbid, should presume to contradict this our definition, 
Let him be anathema. End quote. Pope Pius had done the main thing. He had achieved the hopes and dreams of papal supremacists, papal primacists, and ultramontanes. He had made himself infallible. He had separated the office from the authority of history, tradition, and church council. In the immediate, he believed that this would give him the temporal authority he needed to wrest back control of the lost papal states, to reassert himself as a political power broker, and to bring the European princes to heel. Satisfied that all of this would soon come to pass, and since the charade of all the other reasons for assembling the bishops were now not needed, Pius then gave them permission to leave Rome and return home, although he did not consider the council technically adjourned. The bishops were relieved, relieved in part because Rome had become an unfriendly and hostile place to be. But more importantly, war was on their doorsteps. Around 100 bishops stayed to carry out more congregations of the council, but little came of those. Pius, for his part, resting on what he considered newfound authority, immediately set to unleash this authority on civil rule among the citizens. Previously cited Italian historian Raphael de Caesar compiled contemporaneous eyewitness accounts from those who lived during these days after the doctrine. He recounts the immediate exertion of Pius's interpretation of his infallible authority upon the citizenry. Quote, Impossible to enumerate all the contradictions, apprehensions, and sophistries. Terror reigned. The bishops, contrary to infallibility, were unpopular and avoided as though plague-struck. Never had the congregation of the Index been so severe as during these months until September of 1870, making almost a holocaust of prohibited books. No council was ever poorer in practical or positive results. In none did political sentiments predominate more completely over religious interests. In none, perhaps, had the Pope taken so direct a part in favor of a thesis which interested him personally. End quote. And yet, the dogmatic high of infallibility wore off quickly. A week after the promulgation, seeing his power and influence waning at an increasing speed, Pius wrote to his nephew, quote, The things of this world grow ever more disturbed. God alone can extract from this chaos a new order of things. End quote. As promised, Napoleon III prepared to pull his troops out of Rome. An infallible pope needs not the army of another nation, and he had need of them against Prussia. Odo Russell, British diplomat, sent word back to London that the French were actively pulling out. The British foreign minister wrote back that the recent council was a monstrous assault on the reason of mankind, and that this sort of church despotism would just lead Catholics away from the church, predicting the Catholic government would rue the day they let the Pope usurp their authority. German historian Gregorovius, who was documenting the council while he was in Rome, noted in his diary, quote, Many seriously believe that the Pope is out of his mind. He has entered with fanaticism into these things and has acquired votes for his own deification. End quote. In the streets of Rome, the poem was printed and circulated. When Eve bit the apple and told Adam he can, Jesus, to save mankind, made himself a man. But the vicar of Christ, Pius number 9, to make man a slave, wants to make himself divine. Within days of the promulgation of Pastor Eternus, the Austrian Empire voted to annul its concordat with the Vatican. The Swiss and other nations took steps to limit the influence of the Pope within their borders. For now, local priests were viewed as direct spies. Otto von Bismarck, that most consequential German politician, couldn't have been happier with the declaration. Nothing would unify Germany under one banner more than this decree. 
He used what he labeled as the absolutism of Rome to begin his Kulturkampf movement. Bismarck began forming a coalition of European governments opposed to this declaration, exactly what the minority bishops had feared would happen. Quote, in principle, he has taken the place of each individual bishop, and in practice at every single moment, it is up to him alone to put himself in the former positions in relation to the governments. Further, the bishops are only his tools, his officials without responsibility. In relation to the governments, they have become officials of a foreign sovereign, and, to be sure, a sovereign who, by virtue of his infallibility, is completely absolute, more so than any absolute monarch in the world. End quote. As was feared, a schism did happen, though much smaller than anticipated. Groups of Catholics, particularly Germans, Swiss, and Austrians, broke away and called themselves the Old Catholic Church. They still exist today. British Prime Minister Edward Gladstone stood out of one of the most vocal critics of the decree, accusing Roman Catholics of forfeiting their moral and mental freedom. He called the Church a monarchy, giddy at the height of despotism, saying that the Pope wanted to destroy the rule of law and replace it with arbitrary tyranny, and then hide his violent crimes in a suffocating cloud of incense. St. John Henry Newman privately revealed his disdain for the majority and made some sharp predictions while writing to a friend, quote, I have various things to say about the definition. To me, the most serious thing is this. Whereas it has not been usual to pass definition, except in the case of urgent and definite necessity, this definition, while it gives the Pope power, creates for him, in the very act of doing so, a precedent and a suggestion to use his power without necessity, wherever he will, when not called on to do so. I am telling people who write to me to have confidence, but I do not know what I shall say to them if the Pope did so act. And I am afraid, moreover, that the tyrant majority is still aiming at the enlarging of the province of infallibility. I can only say, if all this takes place, we shall, in a matter of fact, be under a new dispensation. But we must hope, for one is obliged to hope it, that the Pope will be driven from Rome and will not continue the council, or that there will be another Pope. It is sad that he should force us to such wishes. End quote. Newman later famously argued that one's conscience is supreme to infallibility, telling a friend, quote, I shall drink to the Pope, if you please, still, to conscience first, and to the Pope afterwards. While Newman mourned the state of the Church, he was also one of the first, perhaps second only to Pio Nono himself, to recognize how inconsequential the doctrine actually was, saying that in the end, the Council had left the Pope just as it had found him. Newman was right. For just as Pius IX owed his entire office to French and Austrian military generosity prior to infallibility, now, with infallibility, he will owe the loss of the greatest city in the world to a vacuum of power. <laughs>